If you are a guest, welcome to Hope Rock Church. Uh, if you're joining us online, welcome as well. Uh, we really are excited about what God is doing in and through this local body. We're excited more than anything else that Christ is exalted here every Sunday. And that's not a product of any one person. It's a product of the team that gathers together under one name, and his name is Jesus. Amen. We're currently in a series uh, going through the book of Revelation, and we've been through a, a bunch of it. And so I would encourage you, if you are new or haven't had a, a uh, an ability to be here for any one of them that you can catch up with them online. Uh, at least you, the least you can do is read the book. It's, it's, it's really important that you sort of see where we're at because every part of Revelation is sort of interconnected and speaks to the next part. And so it's important that you have a bigger understanding of it. But this particular section that we're in, the seven trumpets, is the third of eight major sections found in the book. Each section uh, deals with specific things, uh, and unlike section one where John was writing to the church or to the seven churches on the island of Patmos through the revelation that the angel of the Lord gave him, John has now been elevated into heaven. He has this vision where he's in the throne room of God. There's this illustration that we could come up with to the best of our abilities of what the throne room looks like. It's this place where God the Father is on the throne, ruling and reigning. Anytime you can put that, that illustration up, it would be great, Steve. Um, what? It always happens to me, man. Steven's like, man, this guy, he always says his illustrations, there isn't. Yeah, okay, that's my fault. Sorry, guys. But you know that one with the circles? And in the middle is God the Father. Around him are these living creatures. Then there's the saints. Then there's the elders. This is picture of heaven, right? And John is up there, and he's seeing all of these uh, things unfold, not from man's perspective, not from the world's perspective, not from the perspective of any situation or circumstance, but from God's perspective. And that's important. And while some may interpret the book of Revelations as being different aspects or different sets of judgment, different events that are happening, my personal interpretation of the book of Revelation is that John is seeing one event, which is God's unfolding of his plan for eternity, but he gets to view this event from different parts of a spiral. And so if you think of spirals and these spirals growing in ever-creasing sort of diameter and width, John starts off at the micro level and slowly but surely God is bringing him to different points in the spiral. He's showing one event just from different perspectives. Now you might not agree with that interpretation and that's okay, but that's the interpretation that I'm going to be presenting this morning. For example, the last section we dealt with, the seven seals. Uh, it's my belief and my opinion that the seven seals are dealing with the judgments that are going to come upon this world. And it's God warning the church. He's preparing the church for what's to come. He's saying these things are coming. It's as a, it's as a result of my plans being made manifest. And so be ready for these things. There's going to come some hard times, some difficult times. Not that they're coming only in the future. Some of those times have been happening for centuries. But God's warning his church. In this particular section, this section now that we're in the seven trumpets, I believe we're looking at it from the perspective of how it's going to affect the unbelieving world. The world out there that for all intents and purposes has turned their backs on God. Now I do want to say this, that even though this section is primarily looking at it from the perspective of an unbelieving world, I want to tell us that as the church of Jesus Christ, we need to take note of these warnings. Because what is 100% certain, and I've said this before, and we'll keep saying it, in fact, Mark mentioned it this morning in our prayer meeting, is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today is closer to Christ's return than any other church in history. We can say that with conviction. We can say that without anybody being able to dispute it. And if tomorrow comes, we'll be closer even still. And what we do know when we look around us in this world is there is still work to be done. The bride, if you have not noticed, is not ready for the groom yet. 
And so as these warning sounds, these trumpets are being rung and blown, we as the church need to rise up and listen and say, Lord, what is going on in this world and how can we be put to use? How can we know Christ and how can we make him known? These judgments are not judgments for judgment's sake. You know, these are trumpets, warnings, an opportunity for those that have turned their backs on God to get the message that God loves them. And even though there is hard times coming, he wants them to return to him. And so, so far in the trumpet series, we've dealt with four of them. The first of these judgments reminded us and really told us in no uncertain terms that these judgments are as a result of God's people's prayers. Revelations 8 verse 3 says, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense rises up to God the Father. Why? Because our prayers have been added to Jesus' intercession. Jesus intercedes on our behalf, and because of that, our prayers are made righteous enough to go to God. What are these prayers? We spoke about this last week. I don't know what they are in detail, but I can tell you it's probably got a lot to do with the martyrs who died for their faith, the people who are currently being persecuted for the faith, the believers in this world who can't stand the injustice that they see around them. Those prayers have risen up to God the Father through Jesus' intercession, and because of that, God is responding. The whole picture in this text is that the prayers rise up and in response the angel takes a call from the altar and it's a fire call which represents judgment and he casts it from heaven to this earth. It's coming from God to us, not the other way around. God is upset with the state of this world. He's upset with the creation that's turned its back on him but he still loves them enough to warn them. The second trumpet or the rest of the trumpets when you combine them together Remind us that God's going to use the natural or the ordinary things, the created things of this world. The first four trumpets dealt with creation, land, sea, rivers, and cosmos, the heavens. God's going to use the Eden that he created for us to thrive in, to multiply, and to take from the Garden of Eden to the rest of the world. He's going to use this creation against us because we never fulfilled the plan, the mission, and the mandate that he gave us right at the beginning. We rebelled against him. And so creation now is being used against us, whether that's tidal waves, storms, diseases, pollution, cosmic disturbances, whatever it is. God is going to use that to get the world's attention. These are not new things, right? These aren't going to start tomorrow or the day after that. They've been happening for centuries, friends. That's how long God's been trying to get our attention, and he will continue until Jesus comes back. And then what we also saw in the judgments is that there is this real practical sense that the judgments are getting worse. Started with the land, ends with the heavens. It's almost like it starts down here, but it ends up here. The severity of what's going on is pretty intense. If you think about a third of the light of the sky being darkened, that's pretty insane, friends. And that brings us to this morning where we're going to discover not only another escalation in the severity of these judgments, but also a shift in the agent that God is going to use to bring these judgments to bear. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 13. I'd like to pray first, if I could. Father, thank you for your power and your anointing, Lord, and for your word. Lord, I don't want you to ask, I don't want to ask you to bless what I'm doing. I want to do what you want to do today, Lord. And so, Lord, I humble myself, I submit myself to your plans and purposes, and I pray that as this word is preached, you will do whatever you want to do with it, Lord. 
I pray that your word would go out and it would not return void. That's the promise. And so I trust it, Lord. I pray for wisdom and revelation for all of us. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would inspire us and you would change us today. That you would reignite us, Lord Jesus, to do the things that you've called us to do. And I pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got a lot to get through today. A lot of scripture um, from various places. So just bear with me. Um, all of it will be up on the screen if you can't. Turn there fast enough. Uh, don't worry, it'll be up there, but you can take note of the scripture references. So verse 13 is actually right at the end of the last trumpet. Uh, it hasn't gone into the new trumpet. There's this moment in time where something seems to happen in between the first four trumpets and the last three trumpets. And it says this in verse 13. Then I looked, speaking of John. This is John looking. And I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. It doesn't sound like good news is coming, right? It sounds pretty in intense. And what we notice immediately is that there is a distinction. There's this sort of grouping of the trumpets together. The first four trumpets are grouped together, and these three trumpets are being grouped together. We know that there's a distinction because John pauses. It's almost as if he's in this vision and he sees what's going on. And then all of a sudden, his attention is pulled elsewhere. And what he notices in the sky flying is an eagle. And it's not just flying, it's crying out, woe, woe, woe to all those who dwell on the earth. And there's some things that the eagle sort of can tell us and sort of prepare our hearts for what's to come. Firstly, the fact that the eagle cries woe three times means that we need to take notice of this. You know, when the Bible has any word in it or any instruction in it for us to do, we take notice of it, right? When it's mentioned twice, we better take notice. If it's three times, we better stop what we're doing and say, okay, God is being absolutely serious in the way he wants us to understand what's happening. Three woes mean this is big stuff. Also, three woes for three trumpets. And so the clear indication is that these three trumpets are coming as a series of judgments. They are linked together. They're going to happen in sort of or similar fashion to one another. The second thing we learn is that these trumpets are going to be worse than the first four. Why? Because the first four judgments weren't called woes. The word woe comes from the Greek word oia, and it means absolute grief. Whose grief is it? Well, firstly, it's going to be the grief of the people on this earth who are going to suffer under these judgments. There's going to be grief. But I believe, and this is me saying this, don't, you, know, you don't have to write this down as dogma or scripture or doctrine, but I also believe it's the grieving heart of God the Father when he realizes what is about to transpire on this earth. When I say he realizes that he's known it, but it's his heart that's breaking because we've gotten to the point now when this is necessary. The third thing, that we see through this eagle, especially the eagle as a messenger, is that eagle in this context is not a good thing. Now, I know often we have these beautiful pictures in our minds of eagles swooping down, bald eagles catching up fish and majestic birds. And God is often related to an eagle as he shelters us in his wings. But in the context here, we're speaking of a bird of prey. In fact, not just a bird of prey, an opportunistic hunter. This past year, we were in South Africa, and we sat around an elephant carcass. The, an elephant had died, and we got to watch all of these sort of carrion feeders come and destroy and decimate this carcass. And what you'll notice in the trees is there's always vultures where there's something dead, right? But it's not just vultures. In fact, there's eagles everywhere. Eagles are by nature opportunistic hunters. They do not shy away from carrion. If you notice there's a, a bit of roadkill on the road, you'll find eagles and vultures at the same time. They're not always the majestic hunters we think they are. 
Sometimes they'll feed off the dead. And the sense here is that there is the stench of rotting flesh. Something is about to come that smells dead, that looks dead, and it's attracting this eagle. Now, I do want to say this. Eagles throughout the Old Testament are used to not only glorify God, but also to warn of judgment. In Jeremiah chapter uh, 34, sorry, 28. What am I talking about? Deuteronomy. My Bible app opened and I was on Jeremiah. Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. This is not an eagle to protect. This is an eagle to bring judgment. And what God is doing in the nation of Israel at that moment is he's warning them. He's saying, if you disobey me, I've given you all the blessings. These things you can get. These are all the blessings lined up for you, Israel. But guess what? If you choose to disobey me, there are going to come hard times. And one of them is going to come in the form of an eagle. A nation will come against you. And guess what happened? Nations came against the nation of Israel. Hosea chapter 8 verse 1. It lines up so perfectly with what we're talking about this morning. It says this, set the trumpet to your lips. Just like the angels are blowing these trumpets. One, like a vulture. That is the Hebrew word naseh. And it can be translated vulture or eagle. They're interconnected. It doesn't matter which way you translate it. Here it says vulture. In some translations you'll see eagle. Is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Eagles demonstrate judgment. Now, I want to say that this has got nothing to do with this morning's preach, but just hear my heart when I say this. I believe the church today, and I'm speaking about the global universal church, is under Hosea 8 verse 1 warning, friends. I believe the Lord is saying to his church, set your trumpet on your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. Why? Because they've transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Friends, this is a scripture that I think we need to be praying into as the church. Why? Because the church, in some sense, has lost its way. And we need to come back to the heart of God because believe me, we don't want to be ever part of an environment where God is judging us. You know, having said all that, there is also no limitations to what God can do. Just let me be clear. God is awesome and he's amazing and he wants good things for us as his people. And so I'm not trying to put fear into you, but I do sense in my heart that this is something we need to take seriously as the church. For all the theologians in the room, I do want to say that whether this was an eagle, a bird, or an angelic being, it doesn't really matter. You know, we could think that this is, just because it's bringing judgment doesn't mean it can't be an angel. In fact, in Revelations 14, an angel is the one bringing the judgment. The one that are bringing the judgments now is the angel casting it from heaven to earth. So this might be an angel. Whatever it is, or whoever it is, what is clear is what's about to come is going to be very different. And in the case of this morning's trumpet, what's to follow is not something that can be explained in the natural. It's not something that's going to affect the natural world. In fact, it's not something that is born of the natural world. What we're going to experience this morning is something of supernatural origins. And that brings us to our first point. Satan and the demonic realm in this world will be used by God to warn the world. I know that sounds so counterintuitive when you think about that. That way you think, but how can God use Satan? Let me tell you what's clear in the text is he does. Revelations chapter 9 verse 1, the room has gone absolutely silent. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. I want to pause there for a second, because while this verse may sound simple, while it may read simply, and we can all think, well, that just tells me a whole lot of things that are going to say, there is so much behind this verse. And I think it warrants us just sitting here for a second and just trying to understand the context of what's going on here. You see, the fourth 
trumpet, this fourth judgment in the book of Revelation in this third section or the seven trumpets is unlike any other judgment we've encountered so far. And I want to tell you that the star that is mentioned in this text is unlike any star we've encountered so far in the book of Revelation. This is not a star that is a cosmic planet. It is not some type of thing that's got, you know, craters on it. This is not a burning ball of fire. This star is something far more sinister. The star in question here is speaking about a supernatural being. In fact, all of the things that we're going to deal with this morning are going to deal with supernatural realities. And to fully understand it, we have to be able to back up a little bit and understand where does this context come from? What is John actually seeing? In Scripture, we're first introduced to the influence of evil in this world in Genesis chapter 3. We're introduced to a character called the Nachash, which is the serpent, the snake. Now, whether that was an actual serpent, whether that was Satan himself, what is commonly accepted is that snake, that trickster, that deceiver, the accuser of God's people is represented in that text. And we know what happens, right? Adam and Eve are tempted. Not just Eve, Adam too. Were tempted, rebel against God because they choose to want to become godlike in their abilities. They want to know and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was never God's plan for them. And so Satan deceives them. Then the next time in scripture that we're introduced to evil influences outside of just Satan is in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 1 it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, the sons of God, I want you to remember that terminology, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. If you continue to read Genesis chapter 6, you get to this very weird part of scripture that nobody likes to talk about. It talks about Nephilim, right? These interdimensional beings. Yes, I said that word in church again, interdimensional. These are divine beings, friends. These are not kings. These are not humans. These are beings that existed long before creation ever existed that God created. If you continue in that, they have these children, these giants, and ultimately the nation of Israel from that moment onwards is sent to destroy the offspring. Now, I'm not going to get into demonology this morning, but in ancient Jewish literature and in ancient Jewish texts, they believe that the souls of the Nephilim, the half-human, half-divine beings, which actually represent the pantheon of Greek gods and Roman gods, by the way, ultimately, because they die, cannot go anywhere because they're unholy. This was an unholy union. And so where do they go? They go to the bottomless pit. They are demons. When we die, even the lost, they don't become demons, friends, just so we're clear. There is a set number of demons, and these demons come as a result of all of this evil influence that's come into the world millennia ago. And what it's telling us is that long before any of us even saw the sunshine, there was this divine host of beings that God created. God is the creator. These beings, which are supernatural in origin, supernatural in how they operate, were created by God. Why? To co-rule with Him. To rule this earth, this creation. And again, depending on who you listen to or what ancient text you'll read, some people believe that the reason these beings ever rebelled from God was that they were upset that God would create humanity and place them at a level higher than them. Now, I'm not saying that that's actually what happened. We'll figure it out one day when we get to heaven. But the fact of the matter is God created these beings many years ago. They might say, well, how do we know? How, how do we know they were created all these years ago? What, 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 what can we see in the text? What can you give me this morning to prove that? Job 38 verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? God says to Job. Job's having a crisis of identity at this point. He's questioning God. God says, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? 
when the morning stars sang together, and there's that word again, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Friends, this is a pre-humanity story. This is God creating the heavens and the earth, and guess who's there with him, the divine host, and they celebrate with him before he creates creation and humanity from it. The words used in these texts are important. Both in Job and in the Genesis account, the sons of God is the Hebrew word B'nai Elohim. That word Elohim, translated, means God with a small g. Not to be confused with big G Elohim, big G God. These are small, little gods. Psalm 82 speaks of something of what went wrong. In Psalm 82 verse 1 it says, God, big G God, capital E Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council. There is this council of supernatural beings in the midst of the gods, small g gods, not big g gods. He holds judgment. How long, he says, will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? I'd encourage you to go read Psalm 82 for yourself. There's a whole lot of stuff in there. But this reminds us that there was this existence before we ever knew anything. And these beings, for whatever reason, decided to rebel against God. At this point, you're probably thinking, well, why did God even create them? Why did God create Lucifer if he knew that he was going to rebel? Let me ask us another question. Why does God choose us to be the mechanism by which the world gets to hear the gospel? He is a God who creates things, and he chooses to co-labor with his creation. And the reason I'm bringing all of this up to us this morning is we have to understand two things. We have to understand where these forces come from. This is not just something that appeared out of nowhere. It's not something that's injected into the Bible. It's not some explanation we can get for some superstitious belief we have. These are real beings under real judgment. And the second thing we have to understand is that some of the suffering, if not all of it, has some links and some connection to the supernatural realm. There is a supernatural reality to the world that we live in. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 2. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That word darkness is important. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The war that we wage on this earth is not a physical one. We're not fighting against people. We're fighting against enemies of God. It's an event that happened millennia ago. It's echoed in many other places of Scripture. I'll give you the references this morning. We can't read them. Go read Isaiah chapter 14 and Jude 6. You'll figure out what's going on in this moment of time. But what is clear, unfortunately, and what we will come to, is that Satan in this account has been given some level of authority. The second half of Revelation 9 verse 1. Let me read the first half and the second half together. It says this, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven, Satan the king of this world, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. That's the pit where all of these fallen angels, that's the pit where this host that rebelled sits, that's the pit where all these demons are locked up. The key represents authority. God has given him some authority. And now we need to understand, what is the purpose of Satan's authority? And that brings us to our second point. Satan is going to use his authority to blind this world. Revelations 9 verse 2 says, He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, speaking of Satan, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. What this verse is reminding us is that there is some link to what happens in the natural. When the sun gets darkened, the moon gets darkened. It's speaking about darkness here. 
And it's interesting because when Satan opens the key to the bottomless pit, it's not the moon and the stars that are failing this time. It is a smoke that rises from it so thick, so dense, so dark that it's going to obscure us from seeing things. The smoke that's rising from this bottomless pit is the influence of evil in this world. It's the demonic realm that's invaded this world. It's the demonic realm that is operating around us. And guess what? They have one job to do, and it's to create spiritual darkness directed at specific people. Who are those people, you might be wondering? Well, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3 tells us, And if our gospel is veiled, hidden, darkened, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, See that, small g God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, who is God himself. Satan, through this sort of smoke, this obscurity, this darkness that has been rising from the earth, has been using these demonic forces and it's making everything harder for people to see. It is becoming increasingly harder for people to see the light of the glorious gospel, friends. And it's not new. Let me just tell you this. This is not something that's happening today. It has been happening for a long time. But I want to tell you something. That I believe we are living in an age where we are seeing this at a level that I have never experienced in my life before. Darkness, friends, has invaded this world. It's a sobering thought. Because it's playing out right in front of our eyes. You know, less than 50 years ago, maybe even 30 years ago, it was widely accepted that in this world there were two genders, male and female. However, today we live in a postmodern world, an era of enlightenment, an age where objective truth no longer exists. And that simple reality of having two genders is in question. It means that what we once agreed to as being real, what we once agreed to as being objective truth, is now no longer objective truth. Instead, what we have today is my truth and your truth. It's the truth from my perspective and the truth from your perspective. Not yours, but the world's perspective. And it seems like the only thing that society can agree on ever today is that everything is up for debate and nobody knows what's going on. And it's all about my personal interpretation. If that's not blindness, friends, I don't know what is blindness. And what's crazy to me is the more that people call themselves enlightened, what they actually need to realize is it's nothing more than an ever-increasing state of spiritual blindness, friends. And there is an enemy that's doing it and he's laughing all the way because people are becoming more blind. And if you think it's hard for us to reach this lost and dying world, let me tell you something. What do you think it will be like for our children and their children? It's going to be even harder, friends. The world is getting darker, not lighter. The third thing that Satan will do with his authority is he's not only going to blind, but he's going to torment. Verse 3 says, Then the smoke came, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. Now I want to say, just as an aside, and this is something that I would encourage you to do in your own personal time, is the book of Revelation, especially the seven trumpets, and in fact some of the events we're going to see later on in the book of Revelation, mirror the judgments on the nation of Israel. I mean, on Egypt, when Israel was in captivity. They mirror the judgments, the plagues. Remember the plagues that God brought against Pharaoh and the Egyptians when he wouldn't let the people go? What you will notice throughout the book of Revelation is that there is a parallel between the plagues of Egypt and the judgments in Revelation. 
These are not physical locusts, though, let me be clear. But it's telling us that these demonic forces will be ruthless in tormenting anything that is put in front of them. The plagues of Egypt were relentless. Let me tell you, when those locusts came, the Egyptians were in trouble. What's interesting to note as well is this phrase. There's a statement in this text. It says, they were given the power like scorpions. And you might be thinking to yourself, but who gave them the power to do that? Did Satan, the king of this world, give his demons the power to go and torment people? No, he did not. Only God has the power to grant. In fact, the language that is used in this text is the same language that was used during the seven seals. Remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Jesus Christ was granted the power by God the Father to bring the gospel message to a world. He was given the kingdom, the dominion, the authority. But guess what? After him, the red horse rides out and he's given the power of the sword to bring persecution. I know we don't like to hear this, friends, but the text is clear. God grants him this ability. And it's not because God is a sadist. He's not up there thinking, how can I make humanity suffer even more today? He's doing it because in the absence of people responding to him, in all the myriads of ways he's tried to get our attention, this is what's left. It's the discipline of God coming on an unrelenting world. Verse 4 says, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people, this is important, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. These locusts are in some sense prevented from being locusts. Why? Because what locusts do is they devastate anything that's green. In Africa, we have locust swarms, not like often, but it happens. And when a locust leaves, nothing of use is left. But these locusts are different because they're not attacking God's creation. They are attacking people. And it's not just everybody, it's specific people. Remember, the people of God are exempt from this. It can only, or they can only attack those who do not have God's seal on them. And so like this demonic invasion is going to blind the mind of the unbelievers, these demons are given the authority to torment them. And what's interesting is if you go back to the book of Exodus and you look at the plagues in Egypt, what you'll notice is it functions in the same way. When God brought the plagues to Egypt, were, was the nation of Israel affected by the plagues? No, they were exempt. There are two camps in this world. There are two kingdoms in operation. There is the kingdom of darkness and there is the kingdom of light. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you trust that his death on the cross is enough for your salvation, not in your religion, not in your good works, not in how amazing you are, how good you are, how many people you've helped cross the street, but in Jesus Christ, you're in the kingdom of light, friends, and you are safe. But how do we know, Marco, that we are in the kingdom of light? How do we know that we are sealed I mean, we heard about the 144,000. I'm not going to go back to it, but here's a great way that we know that we're sealed. Paul says this in Ephesians 1. He says in verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. The gospel is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, that by faith we are saved. We are justified by faith alone, not by our works, not how good we are, but by Jesus Christ's blood. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Not only are we God's possession, but we are sealed with God's presence, friends, the Holy Spirit. And how we know we have the Holy Spirit is if we trust in Jesus Christ, we are sealed. If we desire to want to be with other people who trust in Jesus Christ, we are sealed. Not all the time. I get it. Sometimes we irritate each other. But if there's this general sense that we want to be among the people of God, we are sealed. If we find that God's word and his presence exerts an ever-increasing magnetic pull on our lives, we want more of God, not less of God, we are sealed. 
if it bothers us, when our old habits get the better of us, when we fail and fall to our own flesh, it means we are sealed. And lastly, if you, like me, find it difficult to live amongst the evil of this world and to fight against the temptation of it, that means you're sealed. How can I say that? Well, because only the Holy Spirit can give us the ability to do any one of those things that is by God's Spirit that we can declare Jesus Christ as Lord. We cannot do it any other way. And so if you believe those things this morning, you are sealed. And I want to say to you this morning, if you don't believe those things, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior right now, the fact that you're here this morning either in person or watching online and you're able to hear this message means that you are not blinded yet. And so guess what? There is hope for you too because you too can make the decision to allow Jesus into your heart and to say, Lord, I want you to be my Savior because I can't do this without you. And guess what? You will be sealed too. You might be thinking, but Marco, you know what? You keep saying that when we advance the kingdom of God, the enemy pushes back, right? So does Satan or doesn't he attack believers? This has got nothing to do with attack. This has got to do with torment. Yes, Satan attacks believers. He attacks us all the time. But he has no power over the believer. Satan has no power, no authority, no dominion over God's people. In fact, when Satan attacks... He pretends to have power that he doesn't have. First Peter says to us, and Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He is like a roaring lion. He is not the roaring lion, because the roaring lion has a name, and his name is Jesus. And when he roars, the squeaks of Satan will be drowned out, my friends, let me tell you. Now I want to say this. Just because Satan doesn't have the power and he doesn't have the authority and he doesn't have the ability to harm God's people doesn't mean we don't give him power. We do it all the time, friends. Paul says this in Ephesians 4 verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Don't open doors for the enemy to leverage, to use. And what's clear by what Paul's saying is anger and bitterness more than anything else give Satan an opening in our lives. Whereas, on the other hand, forgiveness and love protects us. There are doors that we inadvertently open all the time to Satan. We need to shut those doors, friends. And it's time that the church takes its authority back. And we say, we are Christ's kids. We are king's kids serving the king of kings. And guess what, Satan? You will stop it because you have no authority over me. You are defeated in the name of Jesus Christ. The last point, and we're going to close soon. Satan's time is limited, but it's highly effective. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And those days, in those days, the people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. This is a picture of torment, not a picture of death. And it's a foretaste of the satanic attack that the lost people in this world are facing daily, friends. But there is a sense, there is a sense that these periods of demonic invasion, the periods of demonic intensity come in waves. He's been given five months. It's not a literal five months, I don't believe. I believe these periods come and it means short but very severe moments of time where people are so tormented that all they want to do is die. But death escapes them too. And so they live in this constant perpetual state of being tormented. 
I say that because the number five throughout, te- throughout Scripture, in Isaiah 30, when he says five will put to run a, a hundred, is not necessarily meaning five people. It's speaking about few will beat many. And so these times are going to come in this world where you're going to have these isolated times of severe torment. And I want to tell you, in those darkest moments, the church need to, needs to be shining at its brightest. Verse 9 and continues in, uh, I mean, chapter 9 continues in verse 7. Ryan, you guys can come up. It says, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had, the breast, they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have his king over them, an angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. What John is doing in this little passage that we've just read now is he's summarizing for us all of these things that are going to transpire as the demonic forces invade this world. And if you notice, what he's using here is he's using the picture of battle. He's displaying Satan's army as being horses that look very weird with lion's teeth and crazy hair and all of this stuff, these locust horses. But they are lined up in ranks, friends. They are lined up in ranks, one after the other. There's a sense of this demonic attack even having discipline. There's a sense that it's going to be so fierce, so loud, the noise is going to drown out everything. It's, a, it's something to behold, friends. This satanic invasion is severe, it is loud, it is intense. They have a king over them, which means they have direction. Somebody is leading the charge. And he's not just a king, he's a king from the bottomless pit. In Hebrew and in Greek, you know what the name means? Apollyon and Abaddon, it means destroyer. That's his sole mission, that's his sole purpose, that's the only thing he ever wants to do is to destroy people. But guess what? Jesus in John chapter 10 verse 10 tells us some beautiful words. He says this, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. But guess what? I came to give life and to give it in abundance. Do you know that is an invitation? John 10.10 is an invitation. It's an invitation to a world who's being tormented by the demonic today. It's an invitation to say, hey, you might be suffering with torment. You might be suffering with all of this crazy stuff. Maybe you even want to kill yourself today. But guess what? I know somebody who didn't come to steal, who never came to kill, who didn't come to destroy, but who came to give you life and life in abundance, friends. And what this trumpet, along with all of the other trumpets, does to remind us is tell us there is still time. Because the final judgment is not here yet, friends. It means there is time today. And what this world needs now more than ever is a church whose hope is not in political parties, in political candidates, in buildings, in crowds, or in finances. Their hope is in Christ alone. We need to be the unshakable rock on which the world can stand, friends. And that rock is built on Jesus Christ. When the church is running around like madmen, worried about what's going to happen tomorrow, guess what? The world thinks, well, I don't want to be a part of that either. We have to rise up, friends. We have to wake up. 
We need to be a church that remembers that our calling is to be sons and daughters who amid the horrors of the world, whether it's demons, devils, our flesh, other human beings, shortages, natural disasters, death or sickness, whatever the instrument is in the hand of God, we need to be the church who like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fire will rise up and say, I will yet praise Him. Because let me tell you, the loudest megaphone that we can be to this world today is a church who in the midst of chaos stands on the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And we say no matter what comes against us, no weapon formed against us will prosper. You want to know how to bring the lost into the kingdom? Live for Jesus. Stand on His words. Stand on His promises. Remember what He said. We win this war. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. No demon, no devil can stop us in Jesus' name. And I, and, I, and I know I sound like I'm being hard on the church all the time, but let me say this, friends. I consider us to be part of the church. This is not us against them. I'm telling you now that we run the risk, friends, of being more interested in crowds than we are in souls, in being more interested in buildings than we are in mission fields, being more interested in fame than we are in fire. That is not the church that the world needs today. It needs a church who's sold out for Jesus, who exists for one thing and one thing only, and that's to give God the glory. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Power of God, friends. We need more of that in this meeting. We need the power of God. But you know what Paul says when he says he's not ashamed of the gospel? He's saying that when I consider, and Charlie and us as the elders spoke about this week, when I consider what Christ has done for me, that I was once lost, tormented, broken, driven to despair, perhaps like me on your suicide bed. Jesus, the light of the glorious gospel, shone into my heart and He pulled me out of the depths of hell and He put me into a place that I could never have gotten to on my own. And you know what? Because of that, I'm not ashamed to shout His name from the rooftops, out on the streets, in the schools, wherever God's called you, wherever He's placed you. We need to stop being ashamed of who our King is and start talking about Him at every moment, in every level, in every event, and everywhere we go. Can I just ask you to stand? I'm getting crazy here. There is a boldness that is required in this next season. There is a courage that can only come from Jesus. There is a single-minded determination that the church of Jesus Christ needs to adopt in what it does. Can I ask us this morning as we go into this next song and this time of prayer. And, and you know, Mark asked us to pray for each other and I want to pray for us corporately. But I do want to say that Prayer is something that every single one of us need every moment of every single day. Let me tell you, I can't do this thing on my own. I can't advance the kingdom on my own. God puts me into community with all of us and neither, neither one of us can do it on. We need each other. And so can I ask us this morning that we would all just raise our hands to heaven and, and ask God to give us the supernatural courage that we need. And then I'm going to ask you to be bold this morning and to be courageous. That if you know that you need more courage, perhaps you've had a, a, a moment where you were ashamed of the gospel. I don't know what it is. I want you to come up here in front. We're going to stand with each other as brothers and sisters and we're going to pray for each other. We're going to pray that God would give us the courage that we need to go forward while the band sings. This is not a sign of defeat. It's not me saying, oh, look at me, I'm a terrible believer. No, it's me saying, I need more of God in me to do what you've called me to do. And so, Lord, over this 
congregation right now, this body, I pray, Lord, that you'd fill us with boldness. And I pray even right now, as we're standing here and as we sing this next song, you would give anybody who needs the courage to come up here for the, to the front for prayer, to stand in agreement with this church, to say, we will advance the kingdom and we will push back the gates of hell. I pray that you would release him this morning from anything that's holding back, whether it's a demon, a devil, some type of thought and insecurity. I break it today in Jesus' name. Satan, you have no power here. You have no dominion over us. You are defeated, Satan. I want to remind you of that this morning. And we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. If you need prayer and you need someone to stand alongside you, come up here right now and stand here while we sing. We're going to pray for you. Amen.